Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, and thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that talks about uh, the topics that you don't often hear uh, on the radio. We talk about violence against women. We talk about interpersonal relationships. We talk about the latest books. We talk about whatever we really think will impact our listeners. And today we have a topic that I think is so important, and unfortunately we don't talk about it often enough, in my opinion. Uh, Unless it happens to you or in your family, uh, most people tend to just avoid the topic whatsoever. And and actually that could be a mistake. We have with us today uh, Dr. Jill. Jill, I'm going to let you uh, introduce yourself. I I could sit there and talk about the stuff from your resume, but I think it would be better if you just introduce yourself. Okay, thank you so much, Heather, for having me on the show. I am Jill Harkaby Friedman from the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I'm the Vice President of Research, and I also have a clinical practice, so I come to the topic from both sides. Great, great. So, yep, our topic today is suicide, and it's a very sad topic. People, as I said, don't like to talk about it, but we need to. Um, And Jill and I talked a little bit yesterday um, about uh, this topic, and one of the things that she said that really resonated with me is it's rare. We hear about it a lot. We we see, you know, uh, see things in the news and everything. And sometimes, and, and it is shocking how often people can, um, uh, die by suicide. But it is um, an anomaly. It's not something that happens every day. It's not something that happens in every family. But I do believe that everybody is touched by it in one way or another. Jill, how often do people die by suicide? Well, in this country, actually, a person dies by suicide every just over 13 seconds, 13 minutes. And in the U.S., 12.4 people per 100,000 will die or have died in the past 2011 are the latest statistics that we have. So, but when we talk about these statistics, we really need to think about different groups. It's not an across-the-board number. Some people are at greater risk, some people at lesser risk. Okay. Um, so even though the number is not as high as some people might think, because based on news reports, it's still too high. It's still, um, you know, too high. Is that what um, 12, uh, help me with my math, uh, 12 out of 100,000 uh, is what, like, well, in, in 2011, almost 40,000 people died by suicide, almost wow. as many as people who died by breast cancer. And so um, the good news is that if we learn about it and learn about how to prevent it, then we can bring those numbers down, just as we have with breast cancer and other illnesses. Yeah, yeah. Um if you'd like to join us in this conversation, I, I hope you'll give us a call, 646-378-0430. That's um, 646-378-0430. Uh, we'd love to have you join our conversation. So, Joe, when why do people commit suicide? I mean, I know that's a really broad, sweeping question, um, but can you give us some indicator of, of what, is the reasoning behind it? Well, you know, I think that many people think that there is a reason or one cause for suicide. But actually, it's a very complex behavior that involves, even in one person, biological, psychological, and social factors, usually in the context of a recent stressor and with access to lethal means. So in part, that's the reason that it's so rare, and it's also the hope about it, which is that 
the suicide crisis is kind of a confluence of many things coming together, which doesn't happen that often. So even when people think about it, it doesn't mean that they're going to act on it. So from the biological realm, we think of things like genetics. We think about uh, mental health problems. Ninety percent of people who die by suicide have a diagnosable and potentially treatable mental health condition, usually more are you, than are you talking? Are you talking about depression? Well, depression accounts for the majority. Um, depression, usually with other mental health problems, and I do want to say that most people with depression do not kill themselves. And so this is the tricky thing about trying to figure out if someone's at risk. So depression would be one thing. Uh, substance use and abuse is another. And um, schizophrenia, psychosis, bipolar disorder, all of these mental health problems. And there's often a depressive component, but not always. You can't just rely on looking at depression to learn if somebody's at risk. You, We'll talk about warning signs and what to look for later. So even though somebody may not have a clinical depression, depressed mood is often a component. And what often people don't realize is that when people are depressed, they're not just necessarily down or sad or low. Some people get irritable, particularly teenagers, and um, often men. So depression takes many forms. It's not just a sad feeling. Other biological factors might include uh, chronic physical illness, chronic pain. Uh, We know that the brains of people who die by suicide are different from the brains of people who do not. Um, Really? Yeah, in in important ways. We have already identified certain parts of the brain through funding from American Foundation for Suicide Prevention that have shown that the the area of the brain that's the frontal cortex, okay, that's the that's the executive, the CEO who says stop, don't act, or um, if it's not working, you might act impulsively. That area of the brain seems to be different in people who have died by suicide, and those changes are not necessarily there always. We don't really understand it. It turns out that genes change our brains all the time. So it's a very complicated process. And what we've known shown is that other researchers that we funded have shown that people who are uh, have engaged in suicidal behavior tend to weigh risks differently and make decisions differently, which of course when they're in a state of suicidal crisis, we see that people don't weigh all the options. They get stuck yeah. in that thinking. And so it all fits together very nicely, actually, um, sadly, but nicely. Yeah. And the reason that's um, important is because we're developing treatments to deal with that. Oh, wonderful! Well, you know, I, I, you know, I'm in dealing with a number of, of different issues, I've been so amazed at how much we're learning about the brain, and how the brain is affected by or affects so many of our different things in life. We we tend to think uh, that the brain is something stagnant. Uh, that you're born with it, it grows, and then there you go. Um, but the brain is impacted by so many different things, any kind of trauma, any kind of, you know, I mean, there's just all these new neural pathways that get created in your brain, and um, it's just really fascinating um, how that can happen. So uh, we talked off uh, off the air again. My father committed suicide, so this is a topic that I'm familiar with. It was many years ago so the pain isn't t- terrifically fresh. Um, but it amazes me um, all of these different things that, that we can um, that we know now about suicide. Um, it, the, that whole brain thing just is, is just fascinating to me, how it impacts and how it can change. And, you know, I, I don't think we're used to thinking of the brain that way. So if the brain can change, can it change? You know, we tend to think of it, well, it changes after domestic violence or with PTSD or something. Can it also change in a positive manner? Well, there's the brain, which apparently, if it can change in a negative manner, we're hoping it can change in a positive manner. And we know when certain treatments, either uh, medications or psychosocial treatments like cognitive behavior therapy or DBT or the combination of those treatments, which works the best, when those treatments happen, 
there are changes in the brain, hopefully um, in a more positive direction. But also, even if you have a thought, it's what you do with that thought. And there, we have a tremendous power to change. So if you're at risk, just like if you have the breast cancer gene, which most people who get breast cancer don't, but if you know that you have it, then you can be proactive about it. So if you know that you have risk factors for suicide, you can talk to your doctor about it. You can engage your family and your friends in the process of your mental health, and um, you can use tools and techniques to fortify yourself to not act on it if that crisis should come up, which is not necessarily a given. Yeah, yeah. Is there any rhyme? I, I, I told you that I got some feedback on when I sent out notices about the, what the show is going to be about today, and um, some of the feedback that I got was, "Well, this is a hereditary thing. This is it runs in families." Da, da, da. Is that true? Does it really run in families? Is it? Uh, is there some sort of suicide gene that that you can you know inherit? Well, there, you know, there probably are many genes that are related to suicidal behavior, and um, but gen- genetics is not destiny. So just because you have some of those genes or you have a family history, does not mean that you're destined to die by suicide. Again, that's where knowledge helps as well. But you might be mentally healthy your whole life. If you face a problem in the olden days when we were try nobody would talk about it which is what we're trying to do is change the conversation if you were in a family where there was risk there people would hide it so you wouldn't even know you were at risk and so you wouldn't know that there are things you can do to prevent yourself from dying by suicide as we raise the conversation and we decrease the stigma about talking about it and about getting help and about reaching out to others and showing care and concern and respect, we can anticipate that that will make a difference in driving down the rate of suicide. Mm-hmm. So when, um, when, when we, as a general population, talk about suicide, why do we make jokes about it? I, I, you know, I'm constantly hearing people say, oh, I could have killed myself. I was, oh, I was, you know. Why do we do that? I mean, we don't well, make jokes about cancer. Right. You know, I, I clearly I, I don't know the reason, but I can speculate that we're uncomfortable with it. And one of the things we do when we're uncomfortable is that we make jokes. And to a person who's actually experienced suicidal thoughts, it's, it's not a joke. And so just like with other areas where people are stigmatized, it's helpful to be aware about making those jokes and trying not to. Because for the person who's struggling, it's a painful reminder. Mm-hmm. And it's on the other hand, I've had people. Yeah, you know, I've had people. Uh, not so much anymore because it's been a while since my father uh, killed himself. But I've had people that were joking and laughing and say, "Oh, I just could have killed him," and then they all of a sudden look at me and they go, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry." Um, I found, you know, I for me personally, it's like, don't apologize. I know you're saying this. You know, if you're saying this and meant it, it would be different. But I know that you're not, you don't mean it. You know, you're just saying it as, as something that people say. But do those casual comments often uh, really re-traumatize people who have experienced domestic violence? Well, we do think that they can sting. And, yes, even if the person's sorry about it, it still has an impact. And it's still, when a person loses someone to suicide, that's not the only thing about them. And when somebody dies by suicide, that's not the only thing about them. And it's important to remember the positives about the person and the things that, you know, drew you to them. So it's not, it's an unnecessary, uncomfortable situation making mm-hmm. fun of that. I mean, yeah. we're all human, but if we can be aware of it, then it would be better not to. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so... We don't know why people um, uh, die by suicide. We don't know why they make those choices. There's a whole number of reasons why. Um, what about the people that are left behind when somebody does make that choice? Well, you know, one of the things, just to back up a little bit, is the idea of choice. And when people 
kill themselves, even if they think it's the right way to deal with their pain, because that's often what happens. People just want to end their pain, and they're actually, it's out of their hands. They can't think about anything else to do. And so it's not necessarily a choice of leaving people behind, but it does. So the people left behind really have to struggle with with the whole nature of the loss. It's hard enough losing somebody unexpectedly. And then when you think it's a choice, which it's, it's actually, it's not a rational choice. It is a behavior because they can't think of anything else to do. Yeah. But then you're left with feelings, of, all kinds of feelings, guilt, sadness, relief sometimes if somebody's been very difficult, um, anger, so many different feelings. And in a family, each family member might view it and experience it differently. So yeah. dealing with the loss, by suicide is very complicated, but you're not alone. Yeah, Jill, we have a caller on the fo- on the line here. Let me go and see. Hello, caller, are you there? Yes, uh, Heather. This is Rita, calling from oh, the Adirondacks. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for calling in, Rita. I, can you identify yourself for folks? Sure. I am uh, Rita Henley-Jensen. I'm editor-in-chief of Women's E-News, which is a daily online news service on the Internet, womensenews.org. Which I have to say uh, I refer to so many times. It, it's just a really great resource. Um, thank you. Good journalism and, and good information. So thanks for calling so much, Rita. Um, what Do you have a question or a comment? I do. Uh, maybe it's a discussion topic. One of uh, when I do a media presentation, sometimes I start with um, my least favorite headline, which is "Man slays wife, children, kills self." And um, <laughs> this seems to happen rather frequently. That, and I know that women do it sometimes too, but that more often it's men who um, decide that if they go, everybody's got to go. And um, I don't think those collateral deaths are counted in um, many of the states when they're when they're talking about domestic violence or the uh, homicide rates. Um, I understand also that children are not included in the DV counts. So I don't know if we can cover this whole topic, but... Uh, it's, it seems to me that men, um, when they commit suicide, more often take others with them. Is that true, Jill? Um, actually, it's not consistent with what we know about suicide. However, when there is a homicide suicide, 90 to 95% of the time it is a man. Um, and uh, many of the risk factors for that are similar. But in reality... Most men who die by suicide don't take anybody with them. They leave people behind. And uh, these kinds of murder-suicides are actually very rare. We see them in the news, so we think they're more common. But they're very unusual. You're right. Those are often uh, by men. And men who are depressed often have substance problems, have anger or, or aggression issues, Often, but not always, they've had a brush with the law. And um, those are usually, as you said, between the man and his family or his partner. But most men who die by suicide, actually most men who die by suicide are middle-aged white men who uh, take their lives for a variety of reasons. I I read somewhere that actually uh, there's a very high incidence of old men who commit suicide. Is that statistically accurate? Well, for a long time until relatively recently, older men had the highest rates of suicide, and now they're second to the middle-aged men. But the good news is that that rate has gone down as there's been increasing awareness that just because you're old doesn't mean being depressed is automatic. And so there's been greater awareness about depression and mental health issues in older people, and the rate has actually come down. The same is true for adolescents. They have the lowest rate, but it's been relatively stable 
because we've been paying attention to it is what we think. Mm. Rita, have you had that experience of uh, um, seeing the older men? Um, I, I I read an article yesterday about a 51-year-old man who committed familicide. I read another article. It seems like they're all the ages are all over the board. 20s, well, I guess 50s. My, my experience as a as a news reporter is um, that what your guest said is is very accurate. That that well, at least in the cases that we read about, which are the more violent ones, in which um, they are suicide, homicide. It's, it's men with um, children, um, youngest children, and it makes it all the more tragic. Um, the one that's standing out in my mind right now, and, you know, you can, they happen with fair regularity, is a, a, a powerful lawyer who took his wife and daughters to, um, uh, from New York, he took wife and, and daughters to Atlantic City and murdered everybody in their bed and then shot himself. So it's and they were like teenage daughters. So um I think that of the ones we read about, um, so that's all I know, um yeah. is that it's often that mid career do they lose job, are they losing face, um, are they fearing older age? Are they <laughs> upset about the woman they married? I mean who who knows? But yes. Yeah. Um, uh, Jill, but I do that... wonder about it, about the statistics. Is there any way to know how many people are taken out by su- by suicide, homicide? Well, there, uh, right now we have the National Violent Death Reporting System, mm-hmm. which has just been increased to cover. I think it's 31 states. Previously covered 18, and that is uh, supported by the CDC. And what they do is they gather in each state, when there's a suicide or a homicide, they gather information. They don't speak necessarily with the families, but they gather medical records, coroner records, police records, and they try to get some specific information about the incident and what happened. And that's how we're going to learn about all of this. To date, we really haven't had that information. And so there's a lot that we don't know. Now that we have the NVDRS and with its expansion coming up, we actually have an opportunity to learn about it. And at the American Foundation for Suicide, we have advocated uh, in Congress, we have an advocacy arm for the NVDRS, and we're very pleased that it's going to be funded because, as you say, we don't know much, and this is how we're going to learn. Rita? Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Did that uh, uh, contribute to your your knowledge? Because it did to mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, thank you for your wonderful program. Oh, thank you so thank much, you, Rita. Rita. Good to, always good to talk to you. Um, <laughs> thank you, Rita. <laughs> thank you. Um, what she brought up, I think, was very significant. Which is sometimes suicide suicide is not just a, a, a an individual thing. Sometimes people who commit suicide are interested, you know, for whatever reason, want to take everyone with them. Um, and I, I guess it's hard enough for me to understand suicide and the thinking behind it without, you know, also then throwing in entire families uh, being taken along. Um, it just, that just befuddles me. Is, has there been any research really about that, There's- Jill? There's been a little bit of research, but it's mostly based on the demographics. And what we know, it's sad for everybody. And because there's a murder involved, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that the person who's engaged in this behavior has a mental health problem, a mental illness, that's probably untreated or not fully treated. And Mm -hmm. so that's part of what makes it so sad is that it's pre- it's potentially preventable if we all pay more attention about our mental health the way we do about the rest of our body. And mm-hmm. so we don't know that much yet, but we know that mental health problems are a huge part of murder-suicide as well as um, substances. And yeah. it's not, it, it's often, it happens in a very brief 
period of time. It's not generally something that has been thought about for a long time, which is the case with suicide in general. It turns out about 20% of people, five minutes from the time they have an idea to when they try to kill themselves, and 75% within an hour. And it's so, the same with uh, murder-suicide. I, I think we all know people who have, um, I won't say threatened suicide, but indicated that that was in their thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has, uh, you know, I mean, I personally have known some people who've been, you know, uh, flirting with that notion for years. Um, in the case of my father, he did ultimately uh, uh, kill himself, but it was years of of him kind of, he never came out and said, I'm going to, you know, kill myself, but his, his actions indicated uh, for many years that that was definitely you know, in in his thoughts. So it sounds like what you're saying is if a person is, is toying with this for, for a long, long period, they might have less risk of suicide or equal risk? I mean... Well, you know, this is this is a complicated and difficult issue because so many people think about it. The rates have been 60 to 80% of people have thought about it in some point in their life. So thinking about it is even though it's a great predictor statistically, is not necessarily, you can't rely on that as the only sign. If someone's talking about suicide, you want to take it seriously because it means they're in distress. And we don't really want to wait until they actually try to kill themselves or die by suicide. So if somebody's talking about it, take it as a marker that they're, feel, they're struggling and they need help. But I, talking about it alone is not going to tell you, as you say, some people have it for years. Some people, knowing that they can do it, keeps them going. So it's, not a, it's, it's a hallmark, but not a definite. On the other hand, if someone's talking about it, you can't just count it out, even if they're talking about it for years. So when we talk about suicide attempts, that is um, a bit more frequent mostly in young people, but not exclusively. And and that's the thing about suicide. It cuts across every age, every ethnicity. And when we start to talk about these numbers, like this is the high-risk group, we forget that if someone's at risk, they don't know they're not in that group. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, they just yeah. feel like they want to kill themselves. So mm-hmm. the, that knowing that is helpful, but it's not necessarily protective or something that you can use to rule in or rule out. So people make attempts far less frequently. Young girls have the h- highest rate of attempt, and the low, they have the low rate of actual dying by suicide. Mm-hmm. So um turns out that about maybe 5 to 7% of people who have made attempts go on to die by suicide. And that gives us a lot of hope because it says that if you get through that difficult period, that crisis, you have a good shot at things improving, and it doesn't mean you're going to die by suicide. On the flip side, if somebody's made an attempt, then you want to keep that in your mind so that if they show other changes, like changes in mood and appetite and irritability, not sleeping, talking about suicide, it's that whole constellation of things that makes us, you know, puts up the warning sign that now is the time where we might be in crisis. And the behavior comes out of a crisis rather than ongoing. Hmm, okay. Um, again, if you'd like to join our conversation, 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. Um, I'd love to have your input in this topic. Um Okay, let's get back to the people who are left behind. If we have mm-hmm. um, a, a, a suicide that uh, is completed and we've got family, we've got loved ones left behind, what does this do to them? Well, when when you lose someone to suicide, it's something that changes your life and you have it with you. But you're not alone and there are many supports out there and can, first of all, highlight for you that you ought to be thinking about your mental health. It brings up many different kinds of feelings, as I mentioned before. 
in addition to sadness, anger, hurt, feeling left behind and abandoned. And it can affect you and the way you function if you don't talk with people and try to deal with it and find a way to cope with it. And if you do that, sometimes even some good can come out of it. And at at AFSP, we have a very widespread support network. And everybody who's struggling, you know, people come to different stages as they keep on living. Uh, But having a support network makes a big difference. I'm going to have you explain a little bit about AFCC. This is the organization that you do research with, and uh, tell us what it is, okay? AFCC, we've we've used the acronym, but what is the organization? Okay, so it's it's the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, so it's AFSP, and you can find information about suicide loss and et cetera at AFSP.org. So the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is the leading nonprofit that uh, aims to prevent suicide and support people affected by suicide and mental health conditions through research, education, and advocacy. So we're a grassroots organization with 67 chapters around the country, and we fund research, we provide education and prevention programs to the community, and we advocate in all 50 states and in Washington. Great. We have, Terrific. Yeah. And if somebody there, wants what, what get, kind of legislation, uh, you know, when you say advocate in, in Washington, and you know, that usually means you're uh, looking for some sort of political input or political solution. What, where does the politics come in in this? Well, what we advocate for is mental health treatment, funding of suicide and mental health prevention research, and uh, safe schools, so suicide prevention programs in schools. We we advocate for fully funding and offering mental health services to veterans and to the general population at large, and mental health parity, which is going to come into effect in January. And fortunately, for the first time, the Affordable Care Act now requires mental health coverage. And um, we think it's only going to get better now that it's required. Good, 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 good. Does every, I know I I do a lot of uh, research on domestic violence issues, and not a lot of psychologists, social workers, and psychiatrists who counsel people really understand that whole dynamic of domestic violence. Is it similar with the the um, suicide issue? Are, are there professionals who are in the role of counseling people who really don't quite understand what that issue is? Well, there is a lack of training, and uh, there are many misunderstandings about suicidal behavior. And by the way, I want to point out that domestic violence and having experienced abuse does become a risk factor for suicide. Mm-hmm. So... We we need to do a better job of educating because people the misconceptions are that once suicide once someone's suicidal that's it but in fact that's not it at all and people do not if you block them from one method they will not choose another method because they're not thinking like their normal selves their problem solving is very inflexible like tunnel vision and that's the biggest misconception that we can't prevent it. And we can. Not every time, maybe, but often. Wonderful. Um, so, the, you know, this education about this issue, I, I think, must be so important. I think, you know, as as professionals, uh, a lot of time there's so much, there's so many areas that we need to be knowledgeable. Um, and, you know, it's difficult to, to know all of the, the issues that people will be coming to you for. But uh, I think some of the biggies, like suicide, is something that people really have to um, make an effort to understand completely if they're going to counsel other folks. Um, and that's my little pitch. <laughs> I totally agree. I totally agree. Suicide cuts across all mental illnesses, and um, and we need to be open to asking about it, even if it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, and it is uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm not particularly sensitive about discussing my father's um, suicide, 
but it does, you know, it, it, you know, my stomach gets a little tight even years later, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does have an impact on us a long term. And uh, even though I think with my dad, I think it was a, you know, didn't necessarily follow the, some of the, the things that we've been talking about. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, I would rather talk about it than not talk about it for somebody who's interested. Does that make sense? Well, I think your talking about it means that somebody else will talk about it, and that will be, bring relief to them and also serve as a role model to other people. And the more we talk about it, not only do we get support, but we try to wipe away the stigma that prevents people from getting help. Yeah. I'm not a particularly religious person. Uh, my sister, however, um, was a, a Catholic. And when my dad uh, killed himself, I asked her her thoughts about, you know, uh, I, my understanding as a layperson is that there, for a long time in the Catholic Church, you, it was con- considered a sin and, and it was a, um, a horrible thing uh, from a religious standpoint. And my sister said that, in her opinion, you know, in her view, that our father was a very good man, and and you know that that if if there was a heaven, that she felt confident that regardless of how he died, he would be welcome there. But I understand that the Catholic Church has changed its views somewhat, but I imagine that there are also people out there who still um, struggle with the notion that, um, you know, this this is um, a sin or this is something awful um, that, that their loved one may have done. Uh, do you see that at all uh, frequently? or? Well, you know, I think things have changed, and so people understand that when somebody kills themselves, they're not in their well mind because Mm -hmm. healthy people don't kill themselves. And so I think that many religious groups have changed their their idea about it to understand that it's a a fatality that comes from illness and and poor health. And therefore, it's not the fully willful negative act that spiritual groups used to label it but there are mm. definitely people that that have not that they don't have the information to understand that it's not a crime it's not a sin it's the result of desperation and pain mm-hmm. well we talked about this yesterday that in fact some states do legislate suicide as a crime um which it makes no sense to me because you know, what are you going to do, throw them in jail if if they don't complete the suicide? I mean, this just makes no sense to me whatsoever. And yet there are places, states, that that have that as um, a legislation, as as law. Um, Is that rather archaic? I mean, what was the whole notion behind doing that anyway? I mean, it's not like you can punish them. It's not like it's they're they're setting out to hurt somebody else. I don't don't understand that. I think many laws are established for safety and in, and often to prevent people from engaging in dangerous behaviors. And so perhaps the thinking was if we make it illegal, people won't do it. And that, <laughs> you know, that comes from misunderstanding <laughs> both suicide and people. But uh, I don't know the origins, but some may be religious and some may be, you know, about, you know, yeah. providing social... Uh, guidelines about how to live. Yeah, could be, could be. Yeah. But it just, you know, for me, because my father was in Ohio, and, and um, the weapon that he used was confiscated by the police. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I asked them why, they said because a crime was committed and weapons used in a crime are confiscated and destroyed. And I went, wow, right. first crime my father ever committed. And it's um, troubling to, for I'm sure for you as a survivor of suicide loss, it's that's a painful thing to hear, and so those kinds of changes need to happen. Sometimes, in in every case though, there will be an investigation because any time someone dies, uh, in for instance in the home, there's always an investigation. So, I also want to you know be mindful that just because there's an investigation doesn't mean that it's considered a crime, and um, it varies from state to state. 
Sure. And, you know, society has a vested interest in knowing what caused this death. Um, So it makes sense that there would be an investigation. Um, But, okay, so there are support groups, and that's what you recommend for survivors, uh, you know, people left behind. Um, How does this affect families? Um, You know, does... Uh, having a, a okay, I'll use my own example. Uh, does having a grandpa who commits suicide have an effect on the children in the next generation? Well, when someone dies by suicide, how long does the effect last? I guess. Well, it it lasts as long as people know about it. But again, not knowing about it often has a more detrimental effect than knowing about it. So it affects people who it affects, it certainly affects grandchildren and children and also friends and neighbors. Um, one of the things that we know is that different people will be affected differently, even in the same family, and so it becomes difficult sometimes to communicate. But the one thing to remember is that grief is a process. And the way you feel about it in the beginning may be different from the way it will be different from the way one feels about it down the road. So there's room for growth and change. One of the ways that American Foundation for Suicide Prevention addresses this is each year, the weekend before Thanksgiving, we have the International Survivor of Suicide Loss Day. And there are over 200 events around the world, uh, mostly in the U.S., but not exclusively, where we have a documentary film this year. Each year it's different. This year we have a film about people who lost people to suicide or struggled with suicide themselves. And then there's, depending on the site, a discussion or a panel of experts or something to help process the impact of losing someone to suicide. And the way you deal with it changes over time, like any other death. Yeah. Um. Except it's not like any other death, is it? Except it's not like any other death. And there are components that, um, and the many feelings, because when people die by suicide, they think that they could have done something to prevent it. Yes. And we don't think about that. There's that guilt component that is always with you. And Um, I think about it, if you think about other health conditions, so if you think about heart disease, if if someone is at risk for heart disease, they can, let's say they can exercise and diet. And we all know people like this who could and should but don't. But we don't feel responsible if they go on to have more problems. And we have to each take our mental health into account and address it and take care of ourselves and also take care of our friends and family because when someone is not thinking clearly, they may need you to push them towards that. But just like in heart disease, if you exercise and diet, you'll prevent a lot, but not all heart problems. Some people need to take heart medicine. And if you don't take it, you're at greater risk. Some people will need heart surgery, and some people will die of heart attacks. So it's an interaction between what the person can do and what uh, medicine, for instance, and the environment has to offer. But with suicide, just like heart disease, Ultimately, it's up to the person. And even though we feel responsible and we want to take control of it in that way, in the end, we did not kill the person. Mm-hmm. It's very hard. Uh, it is very hard. And um, the um, the thing that I know, and I'm kind of making this show all about me, which I didn't intend to do, but it's a, it's because I'm comfortable using this as an example for other people, I think. Um, in my case, there were there was definitely a change, at least for a short time, in the way people treated me and talked to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that was different than what I experienced when there was um, uh, a natural death in my family. Um, they. Some of some of people were like walking on eggshells. Some of the people were like just kind of wanting to stay away a little bit, and you know, definitely a different kind of uh, reaction to a death by suicide. In my case, is that typical? 
I think it's it, people have all kinds of reactions, and some people will be drawn to you, but many people are uncomfortable because they don't know what to do or say, and they forget that you've lost someone. And the most mm-hmm. important thing to say is, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I'm mm-hmm. here if you need me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. Um, and that works no matter what the circumstances. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, but when that's you were why mentioning... talking. I'm sorry. That's why talking about it is so yeah. important. To to we don't. If you talk about it, you will not make somebody kill themselves. Right. That's that's a myth that people hold. Don't talk about it because then you'll make them suicidal. Well, we know that you'll give not them true. the idea. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. It's, as you'll, I you'll... said. Yeah, so it's so complicated, and there's never going to be one event, Just even though it looks like an event triggered it. It's very complicated, and many factors go together. But not talking about it can be unhealthy. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, in um, situations that I'm familiar with, talking about it with your family then gives your, the if you have a another family member who is, uh, reaching the point where they are um, looking at that as an alternative, um, it gives them kind of a license to talk about it and tell somebody that that's where their thoughts are going, I think. Right. It allows them to, it opens that conversation. People often wonder what should they tell children. And the, th- the re- answer is you tell them the truth in a way that they can hear it. But people who have been told untruths, ultimately they always find out. And there can be a sense of both betrayal and also relief. Like, oh, that makes sense. That makes sense why everybody was acting the way they were acting when it happened. That makes sense why this person was struggling so much. So even with little children, you you don't have to tell everything. And they'll ask questions when they want to know and when they're ready. Yeah, exactly. Um, with my kids, I always had, whether it was sex or social issues or whatever, um, I would find that a lot of our, our conversation started by listening to the radio, you know, listening mm-hmm. to the news. Mm-hmm. And we would, uh, you know, I would maybe say, do you know what, what suicide means? Or do you know what STD means? Um, and then we'd carry on a conversation, and I'd just kind of let them lead it. If they mm-hmm. said yes, I said, okay. You know, <laughs> right? And thinking that we'd come back to it another time. And if they said no, I'd let them ask their questions. And I never really, um, I never really made any topic verboten or off uh, off limits for my kids. And the only thing I did was just was to, with your to temper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was to temper my response based on how old they were. Um, so uh, that I and. You know, I think that worked well for my kids. So um, it's really hard to keep things from children. Um, and with my dad's suicide, I did have young children, and um, we we talked about it. You know, I mean, this is what Grandpa did. This is, you mm-hmm. know, Grandpa was feeling very, very sad and very sick, and this is what he did. Um, I don't know what else you can you can tell children because you really can't hide things from kids, can you? No, and they find out one way or another, and it's very confusing for them because you know there there are many conversations going on around them, and without hearing the truth, it can be very confusing for them. And um, just as you said it, which is he suffered, he was sick, and he did this, and um, we're sad about it, and we you know we'll miss him, and it hurts. Yeah, and when anybody dies, we're sad. Right. You know, um, I think that um, it's important to not make this a huge, huge, huge thing for children. You know, I mean, obviously for adults you look at it differently, but for children, I mean, to hone in on that whole suicide thing, I mean, the the whole thing is you've lost a family member. That's the that's the significant, the truly significant part for children to to deal with, in my opinion. And the adults. It's easy to focus on the suicide and have that become the focus of your grief. But usually you've lost somebody that you care about. Or And over time, even though the way they died is so potent, 
it's important to get back to the other things that you knew about that person. They are not just the way that they died. Uh, they lived yes. their life however they lived it. And that's yeah. important to remember. Yeah, I think that's very good advice, very good advice. Um, Jill, tell us about your organization. What kinds of research do you do? What kinds of, uh, how can people reach out to you and to your organization, and what can they expect to uh, gain by doing that? Well, again, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention is a, we have a national office in New York City. We have 67 chapters in 40 states at this point. And you can find your local chapter at AF as in Frank, S as in Sam, P.org, AFSP.org. We, our chapters are involved in programming in terms of educating public. For instance, we have a school program called More Than Sad, and we are one program that helps to train teachers, one that helps to work with students. We, our chapters work with local hospitals. I am the VP of research, and we fund. We are the largest nonprofit funder of suicide prevention research in the country. We have an international program. We fund young investigators, senior investigators. We've really we've grown the field of suicide researchers to try and tackle this problem. This year, we have are funding 29 new studies: biological, psychological, social. And then on top of that, we have a million-dollar grant that we have we are giving this year to look at the assessment of short-term risk. How do you help someone when they're sitting in front of you as a clinician and you need to make a decision about their safety? So we try to cover understanding as well as preventing suicide. We fund research understanding the process of surviving the loss of a suicide by suicide and people who have attempted suicide. So we have, I mean, we have an interactive screening program that provides for anonymous screening in different settings. We're in, I think, close to 90 colleges right now and universities with the Boston Police Department and in the workplace where people can take an anonymous screen and if it looks like they're at risk or could benefit from help, it's kind of like a mental health check, then they can chat online with a counselor. And this oh, wow, is also, how wonderful. It's, it's, very, it's very effective, and it's really meant to reach those people who aren't going to come in. And yeah. you can, if you're a veteran, you can access it on the veteran's crisis line uh, mm-hmm. through their chat. And they're run through the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And I'd like everybody to write down this number and put it in your phone. 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. That's a number you can call if you or somebody you care about is in a crisis situation and you're not sure what to do to help them. And they they have counselors who know how to help you and know how to help a person in distress. So if a crisis comes up, they're an excellent resource to contact right away. Yeah. I think sometimes we think, you know, how can we help, how can we help? I don't know what to do, so therefore we don't do anything. In fact, the best way you can help someone is point them to the people who can give them the best help. Exactly. I also want to mention our community walks because we have, this fall, we have 320 community walks, and this is a great way to get involved and to get to learn about American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and be among other people who support the cause. So our community walks are short walks. Um, You can find them also on our website on the home page. There's a map, and if you put in your zip code, you can get it. And many people walk on our our walks. Some are small groups, some are large groups. And the people are people who've lost somebody, people who have struggled, people who also just want to help with suicide prevention. And as we get the conversation going, more and more people get engaged in this process of saving lives, which is what it's all about. Exactly, exactly. And, of course, we've all heard the thing that, you know, the the, the phrase of, you know, suicide being a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, in other words, things change, and quite often they actually change for the better. Um, but if you um, 
if you if you end your life, there's no opportunity for them to change for the better. Right, and um, what happens is people think they won't change. That's part of the suicidal thinking, and that's why when someone is at risk, if they engage their family and friends, when those risk factors start to come up and those warning signs start to come up, then the community can rally around because feeling connected is a preventive and protective factor. And when people are suicidal, they often feel that they're a burden, and they're not thinking about the fact that their suicide would be a lifetime burden. They just feel Mm -hmm. that they're a weight on other people and that people will feel better without them. And um, it's wrong. It's not true. And so that's why sometimes you have to go the distance with someone, even though they're reluctant to get help, because they're just not thinking in a healthy way. Um, So what do I look for? What do I look for um, or what do I um, recognize uh, if I have a, a loved one or a friend who... How do I know somebody's at risk? Well, you're looking for changes from the way the person normally is. And sometimes these changes can be very subtle. It could be getting worse grades, getting to work on late. It could be um, taking longer to do your work because you're not concentrating. Mood is a key factor, as I mentioned, being depressed, being down, but also being irritated and being irritable and agitated. People think, oh, they're just angry, but that anger can be a sign of depression. Changes in sleep or appetite, too much, too little, change in energy, feelings of worthlessness, humiliation and hopelessness are two factors that also um, can highlight the way somebody's feeling. And then, of course, talking about suicide or when people start gathering or purchasing lethal means. Any of these signs um, or anything that you feel like someone is not like their normal self, you don't want to wait till they get suicidal. You start that conversation with, how are you doing? I noticed that you have, haven't been sleeping. You have insomnia. Any idea what's going on? And start the conversation and try to get them to help. Yeah. And I think that sometimes we accept help from those that are not close to us better than we accept help from those we love. Um, it, it just seems like we don't want to burden them with our problems or we don't want to talk about it with them. And um, so, again, directing people to where they can get help uh, from a professional. Uh, but do your homework and make sure that professional is indeed somebody who's knowledgeable about the, that particular issue. Um, right, and it takes a village, you know, the whole community. You could be the boss of someone and you notice that they're not doing well. You could be um, somebody, a customer who comes in the store regularly and sees that somebody's feeling definite, differently. It takes a village to prevent suicide. Yeah. Any final words for us um, if we, as we uh, wrap up our topic here this morning? Well, we have great hope. We are aiming for a 20% reduction in suicide by 2025, and we think we can do it by investing in research and in education and in advocacy and building our mental health community so that there's uh, affordable and useful, knowledgeable help available. We're hopeful. We think we can drive the rate down, but we need to invest in the problem. So please check in, talk to people. Don't be afraid to reach out to somebody. You could make the difference. Yeah. And don't be afraid to talk about suicide um, in an in an educational manner. Um, and we have guidelines on on the on our website about oh, how yes. to talk about it, which is really important. Yeah. Like there are things you can do that could be insensitive, like trying to talk someone out of it, and things that are Absolutely. sensitive, like yeah. asking Absolutely. them what's going on, or just get over it. You know, that's my favorite. Exactly. Um, so, um, yeah, that website is invaluable. Jill, I have had, um, I, I hesitate to say a good time, but I, <laughs> I've certainly learned a lot, and, and it has been, um, uh, 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 I, I can't think of an adjective. It's been nice talking to you. It's been <laughs> well, <laughs> Help you me know, out here. <laughs> we're saving lives, and it is, yeah, it is, a, a, it is a positive topic. I know it sounds strange yes. because it's yes. filled with loss and heartache, 
But it is also a positive. If you've lost someone or you're struggling, there is a positive future. And so, and it's thank you so much for taking the time for your listeners to thank help you. educate Joe, them I always and prevent end our show I always end our show with a quote, and today the quote is unattributed, so I don't know who said it, but suicide doesn't take away the pain, it gives it to someone else. Hmm. And um, at least in my experience, I right. think that's pretty true. Um, right. uh, so, you know, you've you got to deal with this topic, you've got to get people help, and you've got to become knowledgeable yourself. Thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're going to be back next week, and I don't have our topic lined up, but I think think it's going to be a great one. Again, thank you, Jill. Thank you, listeners, and see us again next week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 